This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Anne Gripper, and I am delighted to be joined by a very special guest today, all the way from New York via Zoom. Clive Irving, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Very nice to have you with us. So Clive is a an illustrious journalist who's worked all over some of, you know, the UK's most famous news outlets and is now a columnist on the Daily Beast and based in lovely New York. So joining us via the wonders of the internet. But he is with us today because he has written a book called The Last Queen, which, let's face it, that's a slightly provocative title, isn't it? It's deliberately so. Um, it's sort of a title that came to me because I felt this was a book that, in a sense, I had to write and that only I could write because of the coincidence that my career as a journalist has more or less run parallel with the Queen's queer career as Queen. So there are not many people who are in the same line of work for as long as that, for 70 years. And because I've been a journalist for so long and I've sort of, during that period, bumped into the, as it were, bumped into the Queen on many occasions when the Queen has surfaced in, in the news in various ways. So I can look at, I decided that I was going to look at the Queen's whole reign in terms of a series of crises, if you if you like, and then look at the way she responded to those crises and the way that those crises were covered. And of course, it's a very striking distance in time from 1953, the coronation to now, and the world has changed so much and the state of the country has changed so much from uh, what was called and hailed as the first Elizabethan age, a piece of hype that they produced in 1953 to make it sound glamorous and, and wonderful and, and sort of launch a new brand, if you like, of the, of the monarchy. And she's, she's, been, she's had to carry that brand ever since from then until now. And so obviously it's evolved enormously as the country itself has changed and evolved. And I think there's, there are kind of three phases in the Queen's reign uh, as, as I came to look at it. The first phase is what I would call the apprentice phase where she's learning on the job because she's very young. She's been dropped into the job um, all of a sudden when her father dies in 1952 and she, she, she has a mentor in the form of the Prime Minister Winston Churchill. So that was a piece of luck because you couldn't imagine a, a greater mentor for a young inexperienced monarch than a man who physically and literally carried the history of the country in his head and was a participant in the greatest sequence of 20th century history. And she was also influenced before that by her father. So you see, she begins with these sort of two father figures to help to guide her through. And what a thing to be guided through, because uh, I have a clear memory of what Britain was like then in the 50s. And it was a very gloomy, dark place. There was was still rationing going on. Food rationing was lingering on after the after the war, there was a sense of austerity. It was a sense that the country was really broken because the treasury was exhausted. There was no money in the treasury. Um, And it was taking a very long while to recover. So the idea that suddenly you have this glamorous new woman on the throne was something that the government really wanted to exploit. And that's why you got the the hyperbole of the 
of the new Elizabethan age. And ever since then, it's been a kind of stress, stressful time for the Queen to decide how far you can push that idea and how far you have to accept the reality of changing, and particularly the serious changes in, in British power. You begin at the time of when the empire is yet to be fully dismantled. The whole of Africa is, is still a colonial setup. Um, and it's, it's uh, uh, imagine put yourself in her place as a young woman. Imagine what that burden must have felt like. It's a lot to project onto a, a, a young woman taking on a massive job, which there's not really, not really any training for. And, you've, you know, she's she done a lot of learning on the job for better or worse, really, over the years. Yeah, and she had other problems, too. She had a problem with Prince Philip, really, because Philip was very, very... Um, after the coronation, Philip was very frustrated in not being allowed a greater role. And he presented himself as a very modern man, who was contained, restrained, constrained by the ties of the of the of the formalities of the palace and what the role he was number two, not number one. There was no equality between the two. He was obviously a very very um, vigorous young man and was frustrated by that. And having the the coronation televised was his idea, and he thought, well, there, you know, I've, I've made one big big gesture, which has made a big difference in, in the accessibility of the monarchy. People could now join in and watch this wonderful medieval ceremony, all, albeit in black and white and flickering on a cathode ray tube, but still it was a very, very new experience for everybody. And then he's, he's, he's not content to play second fiddle. And was, then a great issue came up, which was the family name. He, in league with Earl Mountbatten, and Mountbatten was... In my book, Mountbatten emerges as a kind of evil uncle in the background. And there's a whole period where, because Mountbatten has had a great influence on Philip's education, and then in turn, the two of them have an influence on Charles's education, this, the Mountbatten side of the family, I felt I was writing about not one royal family, but two. On the one side, you have the Mountbattens, which is basically um, the old European monarchy combining Greece, Germany, and, and Denmark, all these feudal titles and on the other side you have the Windsors, a name that was invented in 1917 in the middle of the first world war because they wanted to remove the german associations from the monarchy since we were fighting germany and so here you have in the mid 50s the mountbatten's wanting to stage a comeback for the german connection the german name and the queen not being at all happy about that and i found there's a contradiction here between philip posing as the great modern man and then wanting to revert the family name to a feudal, um, old European, where there are all these old royal houses all tagging along, still limping along after two or three centuries. And he wants to reassociate the monarchy with the name of that, Mount, Mountbatten. So there's a conflict there. And that conflict with the Queen went on for 10 years. And in Harold Macmillan's personal diaries, he, he describes how distressed, how deeply distressed and in tears the Queen was when she talked to him about it and, and, said, and said to him that Philip is pressing me to do this and that really have to make Philip happy by doing it. I can imagine, you know, he's he's got a reputation for being a, a stubborn and opinionated man, I think. And I can imagine if he was if he was set on that, then living with him with it would would not have been an easy thing. And I, I've got no idea that Princess Anne had had signed her name on the register in such a way right. to cause a bit of drama. She was the first one to do to do 
uh, Mountbatten Windsor as the name, and then the next one was a, was Archie, was was young young Prince Archie was Mountbatten Windsor too. So it, it, after all this time, that feudal name has cropped up again, c- connected to the Windsors, and of course. Philip was one of the boys too, you know. I mean, he was he was a, he was a full-blooded alpha male, and and considered himself to have the sexual hunting license of a license of a full-blooded alpha male, and that went on for a while too. And it, I think one of the things that I was thinking reading your book, you know, the Queen is she, it's problems of her family's own making. A few of them are hers, but mainly it's been. She's she has tried to be duty. Sometimes it's been a bit too much duty, and she's forgotten a bit of the human from time to time. But that feels like what she's been trying to do. While sometimes all around, all around her is chaos and not very helpful. That, well, that, I think that's a very good point, and that that's largely true. That, that she is the rock at the centre of this extremely turbulent and unpredictable family, and she has. To hold it together, and she's done a pretty good job of of um, of learning how to do that. It must be it's a big distraction from her vocation, and she has a very powerful sense of duty. This is what marks her out, particularly in contrast to Prince Charles, who has no idea what this is what duty means in that sense. And I think that her devotion to the job is largely the construct handed down from her father and then explained by Churchill, is that the role of the monarch in one sense is powerless because she has no political power as such, but she is very powerful in a symbolic way, in an apolitical way. And I think that's very important because I can't imagine what the United Kingdom would look like or feel like if there were not a monarch there, if instead there was a political, politically appointed president, as in other countries. So if there is a genius to the idea of the British monarchy, it is that you have a powerless person who nonetheless conveys authority. That's a very interesting combination. She has no power, but she radiates authority. And she and at the moment during the last year when we've been going through this horrible stuff, she's, she's appeared as a kind of wonderful, soothing, emollient mother figure. Uh, and people identify with that. That's why if you look at the YouGov ratings of the royal family, She's still way up there at, at 80% approval um, because she has managed to carry that sense of duty, her own sense of duty, and, and convey it to the people. There's no, no there's, as you said, there's no one around her who has anything like that gravitas or, or attracts that kind of affection. So you, you kind of say at the beginning of your book that you think that she will be the last Queen of England. Yeah. We've obviously got three generations now where we're expecting to have kings. kings so yeah. do, you ex- do you expect them to manage to mess it up by that time or the country to have grown tired of them, um, of having a monarchy in charge? Or why, why do you think that Elizabeth will be the last Queen of England? It's very perilous for anyone to kind of guess too much of what's going to happen. If you think of where we were in January of this year, could you guess what, where we'd be by the end of this year. So <laughs> you couldn't. Just in normal life, yeah. yeah normal right. in inverted commas. But I think the big test is going to be Charles because Charles, I think the Queen has determined, some people think that she's going to uh, invoke the Regency Act when she gets to 95 next year and Charles will become 
Prince Regent and rule as Prince Regent while she's still alive. I don't think she's at all minded to do that. She's very fit. She's incredibly robust for a woman of 94. She's physically independent, doesn't need a stick. I watched her step out of a train, completely balanced, and, and, and she was riding a horse the other day. And she... I think has done us a great service by staying in there as long as she can to keep Charles off the throne. (laughs) It does seem to be more of a a sort of a soft handover at the moment. I'm still in charge, but you can go, you can go do these things for me. A bit more delegation happening. Oh, there is. Yeah. And I think with Prince William, that's particularly true. And I think William's been doing a great, Charles has been doing some stuff, but William is such an attractive and balanced and steady person with a very attractive wife that the two of them together have have managed to take some of the load off the queen i think you talked about sort of a a series of crises what have you made of the royal crises of the last year of sort of self-inflicted ones of of prince andrew and probably more more so harry and Meghan? yeah i think there's a big difference if you look at it from here in america Meghan and Harry are a huge asset to the royal family. They they are considered here to be a very useful addition to, to the scene. That they give the impression of a very modern couple determined to do great works across the world, which I think they will do. And they're a good um, ad- advertisement for the royal family. Prince Andrew, on the other hand, is the worst kind of liability for the royal family and i know he's been sent to the gulag but he's still he's hovering there as a kind of and, and i read that he was considering that he might be able to come back to public life which is risible really he won't be so it, 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 on, in terms of pure attractiveness harry and Meghan are great ambassadors for the royal family and prince andrew is a real liability <clears throat> the, the other thing that's happened this year i think is that because of the lockdown, the Queen has felt very frustrated at not being able to do the daily round. She's do investitures and contacts and meeting people. So that when she appeared at Porton Down in that wonderful pink outfit, the pink coat, and the pink hat with William, and at that time we didn't know that William had had the virus and he came up afterwards. And here he was among people who understood fully how the virus operated. So the, the scene of the two of them there, I thought was wonderfully symbolic that she was basically saying to the country, I'm still here, I'm I'm looking, I'm taking this stuff very seriously, and I've got a great companion with me in the form of William. So she was dealing with that very well. <clears throat> Were you surprised that the royal family didn't manage to um, support or find find the right way to give Harry and Meghan the life that they would want and then even, I guess, how it unfolded after they did decide they had to leave? I wasn't surprised because they're repeating all the same mistakes they made with Diana. Um, And I I don't know who they are when we say this because it's not the Queen herself and it's not Philip. The Queen has views about this and I get a sense that the Queen is very fond of Meghan. She's always made that very clear, I think, in things that she's said specifically. Um, I think she's also obviously very fond of Harry. And whatever <clears throat> disagreements there are between the two brothers, you can't expect two brothers to have... A, they've got different destinies for a start. One's destined to be king and one's not. Um, you know, the Queen and Princess Margaret were very different people. Why should Harry and, and William be the same people? 
um, I think that the attractiveness of of Megan, in a way, is that she's an outsider who's very accomplished in her work, stands up for herself, is has a worldview, and 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 I think Harry, certainly from his military experience, has acquired a worldview. And who are the, the they are they are in the palace? <clears throat> they call them all sorts of euphemisms like palace officials and whatever. They're old white men, mostly, and old fogies, upper-class fogies, to whom, and I know this from conversations I had with people on the fringe of this, this gang, that they have a aversion to, uh, partly racial, they'd never admit to that, but part, it's partly racial, they have aversion to exotic, strong-willed women. Uh, they think that, that Harry, that she's sort of, that she's responsible for making him do it. You know, Harry, she, she made it. They can excuse Harry by turning on her and saying, she makes him do it. That's not fair or true. They're, they're well aligned together, Harry and Meghan. They're of a mind. So as I said, I, I see the echoes of all the mistakes made with Diana of not understanding what an exotic and, and um, charismatic figure they had in the middle of, dropped into the middle of them. And instead of turning her into an asset, which she could have been, they made her, they ostracized her. Now, of course, you can't take that apart from the failure of the marriage. And, and that marriage was doomed from the start, really, because it was out of the old playbook of fairy tale royal marriages. Because someone who will be nebulous, easy to manipulate, and, and, and quietly accept that her husband was going to have a lifelong affair with somebody else. You know, that was the view then. And that was Earl Mountbatten, of course. When he died in 1979 and that whole Mountbatten shadow was removed, the Queen then becomes a dip. This is the third and final phase of her monarchy, I think, with, with Mountbatten out of the way. She is much more, seems much more self-assured. There aren't any noises off anymore, but she's left with the baggage of Mountbatten. Part of that baggage is that, that, that neither the Queen nor Philip properly understood who Charles was right from the beginning. They forced him into an education that was entirely unsuited for him because, as he said himself, he doesn't like playing in teams, he's a loner, he was introverted. And they wanted someone who was one of the boys, and they got that in Andrew. That's why even to this day, Andrew is clearly the Queen's favourite, even now, because he's kind of bumptious and, and arrogant and all the things that Charles is not. They're, they're complete opposites. It's a, yeah, it's a fascinating time as well because obviously the crown is revisiting the lurid 1980s and the lurid royal headlines from those times and the you know the the love triangle or the I guess the 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 couple who were the long time um, the long time couple who we have now as as Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and and the woman who who was his first his first wife and sort of put up as the patsy a little bit. The thing that strikes me about the crown is that as it's gone on, Peter Morgan has been taking more and more <clears throat> creative license. The first two series, I think, were very pretty close to the truth, particularly about Princess Margaret. Um, but the new one, series four, he's taking more liberties with. But I still think that I'm amazed by the way it's forcing people to take sides. This whole argument about should they have a health warning at the top saying, Part of this is true and part of it is not. Well, that wouldn't serve any purpose because you wouldn't know which is true and which is not. 
I know what's true and what's not. And from my point of view, um, I don't think that much is misrepresented. I think you get some miscasting. I think that that um, Prince Mar Princess Margaret is miscast, although Helen, Helena Bonham Carter is a wonderful actress. She's playing Helena Bonham Carter and not Princess Margaret. Uh, and Vanessa Kirby, who was the first Princess Margaret, was much closer to the real Margaret. I noticed, by the way, that Tony Snowden, who's a big figure in my book because I knew him very well, he's gone missing. You don't see him anymore. He's not in it. And I think he and, and Margaret continued to have a, a relationship. And, and Tony was very important to the Queen. The Queen was very fond of him. And he was the first commoner to go inside this trap, to go inside this trap that Diana later went into. And I think Tony always handled it extremely well. He handled it with dignity and um, forbearing. And I never forget, I, I have a chapter in my book called Last Lunch with Tony. I never forget the thing he said to me over that last lunch. I asked him about Diana and he said ominously, he said, I don't think Diana understands how dangerous it is to be more famous than the Queen. And boy, did that turn out to be the case. I mean, that, I had that lunch with him, I think it was in 1988, and, and, and that sort of predicted what was going to happen. So tell, tell us a bit more about your connection with Tony, because he's someone you write about with sort of real warmth and friendship in your book, really. Yes, yeah, well, Tony was an incredibly talented person. He was a very good photographer. He made, <clears throat> he made a complete change to the way royal portraits were shot. Before Tony, it was Cecil Beaton. So, ironically, when Cecil Beaton was a young man, he was as radical and as novel as, as Tony, but as he became an older man and an older photographer, he went in for all these over-elaborate kind of ask, Royal Day, Ascot settings for royal portraits. Tony comes straight in, takes his first royal portrait of Prince Charles as a young kid entirely naturally. And so that was the first thing he introduced. He got rid of all the photography that made the royal family look like pieces of furniture, over-decorated furniture, and made them into real people again. And that was part of Tony's trust. And then he played a real role in making the monarchy appear. He was a modern man inside the monarchy, and, and he did good works. He did incredibly good works on behalf of handicapped people because when he had polio as a kid, he was in a wheelchair, and he realised that there were nothing like enough conveniences for people in wheelchairs, so he campaigned for that. Contrast that with Prince Charles, which I do in my book, where Prince Charles has been a meddler, and he's meddled in subjects which he doesn't understand. He meddled in architecture, and as a result, some very good modern architecture never got built, which I think is a kind of vandalism. And on, on the other hand, Tony was a big influence on young architects, people like Richard Rogers and so on. He tied them up with other young architects and his legacy and, and the way he restored Kensington Palace, by the way, was entirely Tony's doing when he was still happily married to Margaret. He restored Kensington Palace. He recognised it was an architectural treasure and he did a fantastic job on it. So these are just some of the reasons why I was very fond of Tony. Also, I worked with Tony you know, at the Sunday Times and at the Daily Express and he was just a very, very good photographer. Were you surprised that he ended up being a member of the royal family? I was gobsmacked because I professed, this was when I was on the Daily Express, and I was taken as the Tony Whisperer because I'd worked with him 
for a while, everyone assumed I knew everything that was going on. I knew what was going on with his girlfriends in Pimlico. Jackie Chan, this wonderful girlfriend he had in Pimlico, I knew about that. I never got a scent of anything that was going on with with um, with Princess Margaret. And that was surprising because I also knew Robin Douglas Hume, uh, who was another one of Princess Margaret's admirers who she later had to fling with. I never picked up a thing. And so when that was announced, my so-called expertise as a Tony Whisperer was shot completely to pieces. When, when a friend starts, you know, becomes engaged to the Queen's sister or any member of the royal family, how, like, how did, how did he handle that? Or how did he change, how did that affect your friendship and ability to sort of be, be mates together? Well, it, it did change because it changes naturally because the guy is suddenly not Tony. Well, he was Tony. I always called him Tony. But he was Lord Snowden. And he always made a point of referring to his wife as Princess Margaret. You could never be informal with him about that. It was always Princess Margaret. <clears throat> but in terms of what the working relationship, it was, it was just the same. You know, quick interchange of ideas let's do this story how should we shoot it let's do it that way and that stuff always worked out as it always worked out before very well but I was conscious that his other life was was so different to him and he never liked having all these flunkies around he always liked fixing things himself he had this little cottage which had no central heating and which Margaret hated uh, and uh, it was all bare bones. He, he loved that kind of stuff, and she used to complain. I was living in a palace. I've always lived in palaces. I'm no no intention of changing now. You know, was, he he liked the Spartan life in a way, and she she did not. But for a while, it was a great love affair, I think. And and she owed a lot. She's the only member of the royal family, by the way. She was the only member of the royal family who, in my view, was not a philistine. She really was deeply involved in the arts. She was deeply involved in music, ballet. She was loved to be in the company of brilliant young creative people in the 1960s. No one else in the royal family ever showed has ever showed any engagement like that in the arts. They go to royal command performances. They they go through all the motions, but they're not engaged in the way that Princess Margaret was. Because Princess Margaret was one of the sort of early early crises for the queen in her in her reign really before she yeah. met your mate met your mate tony so that was you know a very difficult time right at the start it was i think the queen's had a bad rap for that partly because of margaret margaret liked to persist with the idea that that she was a thwarted she was thwarted in, in having the great love of her life but the whole apparatus of this of the establishment came down, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lord Chancellor, the Prime Minister, and even her sister, the Queen, to stop her from marrying Peter Townsend. That was true in the first phase of the affair, but it wasn't true at the end. Although we only got to know that when the Royal Papers were released 50 years later, that she'd already told the Prime Minister by the time the two years of exile for, for Peter Townsend were up and he was coming back expecting to marry Margaret, he'd been posted off to Brussels. He came back expecting that the marriage would go through. By then, Margaret decided that the age difference was a problem and he wasn't such such fun after all. And she was looking for a loophole to get out of this. And she she she, did, she told the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, that more or less that she was called on the idea. But she managed to allow the, the impression to stay that, that, that she wasn't responsible for breaking it off, that they were. And she never made it clear that the Queen 
was happy to allow her to do that on her 25th birthday. So that, the importance of this story, by the way, is it's interesting because it's a forerunner of everything that was going to happen to Diana, that Princess Margaret became a celebrity, a glamorous fairy tale princess in a way that had never happened to anyone in the royal family before, because by then you have all the newspaper coverage, you have all the new media, television and so on, magazines happening in a way that hadn't happened before. And so Margaret's love life became an open book to everybody. It was a wild love life. And so she was really the forerunner of Diana. She, it was she who attracted this enormous concentration of paparazzi and media coverage to a member of the royal family. And the warnings were there from what happened to Margaret to what would later happen to Diana. What do, what do you think the Queen makes of that kind of life? Because, you know, she's the Queen, she's the, the top, of, top of the tree, but she's sort of all surrounded by duty and, and seriousness much more. You know, occasionally we see a big smile and her laughing and, you know, really cheering on the horses or whatever it might be. And you see affection with the, you know, a bit of affection with the kids when off on the balcony and sort of interest in, in what is going on. But all of that sort of drama and glamour and, you know, that, that side, the celebrity is quite alien to how she has lived her life. Well, it's interesting, I say this at, at the end of the book, that she's the one person in the royal family who's never been touched by the tabloids because she doesn't generate anything that's of interest to tabloids. Um, so she's able to, before the bubble, live in a bubble, in, in the bubble of, what's reco- of, of her image, of what's reco- required of her to be in, in public. She's a human. She knows what the hell is going on around her. She knows all these all this blood being spilt around her, all the anguish and the in- introverted uh, problems of the family, the failed marriage, God, so many failed marriages. I mean, one of the strange things I noted in my book was that if they got involved with horses in any way, the marriage was doomed. You know, Princess Anne's <laughs> marriage was doomed because of horses. <laughs> and Fergie was a horsewoman and that, that marriage was doomed. Um, Diana, of course, wasn't interested in horses, whereas Camilla is interested in horses. Added complications down the stables. So the Queen has created this comfort zone around her. Someone who lives in public to the degree she does, and someone who's famous to the enormous heights that she is famous, has to create a comfort zone into which she can retreat and be herself. And the one that the comfort zone that she's created is this equestrian world of the shires, where the thing she loves talking about is horse, horses, horse breeding and horse racing. And this has become strangely apparent when she comes here to America because she's had, through, through her monarchy, she's had five holidays in Kentucky where people who were with her during these holidays in Kentucky, when she's been staying in the homes of extremely rich people, while themselves horse breeders, because Kentucky is horse country here. They said that they've never seen her outside of that setting, more relaxed, more at ease, less demanding of people to kowtow to her, and more naturally on the same level, because they're able to discuss things which they have in common, horses. So this is why, and I think Kate Middleton has been very smart in this way, that she's adapted to that 
equestrian life in the richer shires, in the Berkshires and the Oxford Shires, you know, where that life goes on. And that's, that's the life where the Queen really is the Queen herself. You're, you talked about your career sort of shadowing the Queen's, the Queen's reign. What was, what's your first memory of covering royal stories as a journalist? A Princess Margaret's story, when I, was on, when I came to London from Liverpool and worked on a tabloid, now long dead, the Daily Sketch, and we, ha- we thought we had an inside track to what was going on, but we didn't. And at that moment, I think I probably understood from that moment that when it comes to selling newspapers, there was nothing like the royal family. Uh, uh, and of course, that's still very true today. And that's why in the royal rift industry, you know, there's a royal rift industry. You have to, and in fact, something Princess Margaret said, by the way, it's very interesting, I've got it in my book. She said that we, we, we don't have rifts in our family. We just have jolly good rows and then it's over. So this height, you have to sustain the idea of a rift. So poor Meghan and Harry are solely the royal rift industry at the moment. There's no other royal rift that's interesting except the one between Harry and his brother. So that's the one that stokes it. But so to go back to what the question you asked me, was then I first appreciated how this family sold newspapers. And of course, the newspaper proprietor to first recognise that was the, I think, the newspaper to first recognise that was the Daily Mirror at the time of the abdication, when the Daily Mirror was the most outspoken of the tabloids about the abdication and about Mrs. Simpson. And in fact, that's the opening, in the opening chapter of my book, when I tell the story of the arrival of the tabloids in the royal family. And the Mirror after that more or less became the DNA, the set the pattern for how the, the newspapers would then cover the royal family. Oh, so maybe it's a good thing that the Mirror now has a royal podcast. Here we are down however many, yes. however many years later. And you talked about um, sort of meeting the Queen or being, being in her orbit on, on various occasions over the years when you've been, when you've been covering particular stories. What, what is she like in person or what kind of a, a feeling did you get from those visits or, or are there any that particularly stand out in your, in your memory for being... Well, I've, never, I've never been in, directly in her orbit. The, the only sort of second hand was when, this is a story I tell in the book, when she summons all the newspaper editors because she's annoyed about the, the way they're harassing um, Diana when she goes out to buy some wine gums in Tetbury and she's ambushed by some photographers in Tetbury. And so that, this is the only time in the whole reign of the Queen when she summoned all the editors and, and tried to teach them some manners and some discretion. Um, she wasn't very successful at, at that, but that was the one. But the editors who came away then, including Harry Evans, who I knew very well because we worked together, um, were very impressed by her grace in the way, it, this combination she had of grace and yet firmness of just making an appeal, for God's sake, be civilized in the way you treat this young, inexperienced woman. It fell on largely deaf ears, but I think that made an impression on people. And I feel that the Queen is is above worrying about what the newspapers say. I don't think she's she worries about what the newspapers say. She if she did, she'd 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 be out of her mind, I think. <laughs> After 90, 90 odd years, but no, you know, she her her life has covered some really fascinating times in history. 
And I had, I'd never realised since I was, I was looking at it, but, you know, the sort of the closeness of the royal family to some really sort of quite dramatic things that sort of reading about, um, you know, a bit of Cold War action and a visit to Ghana and then no. the Profumo no. affair and the kind of the links there. And to spy the surveillance of the Queen's pictures being a spy. Oh, that's an extraordinary story. And of course, look, this is Anthony Blunt, who got um, into the palace as as the um, as the as the as the curator of the Queen's art collection at the end of the war, uh, because he, he was a great authority on on many of the periods covered by the, the royal collection, and then he he's he's sent with the um, the royal archivist at Windsor. The two of them go off to Germany, dispatched by Churchill, because Churchill knows the, the dark secret that not many people in the country knew it. They knew that the Duke of Windsor in the late 1930s, after the abdication, flirted with Hitler. And there was newsreel and photographs of him raising his right arm and and he went to see Hitler um, with, the, with, um, with the Duchess. Uh, so that was known, but what was not known and what I've told the story of in the book is that the younger brother of the Duke of Windsor, the Duke of Kent, George, Confusing because he's not the King George, <clears throat> uh, but um, he was the younger brother, and he was by far the most glamorous of the younger brothers. He was bisexual, a very complex man, and he had very strong connections to the German side of the family. And right up until the outbreak of war in, 19, in September 1939, he was among a large number of people who thought you could make peace with Hitler, and it was much more preferable to make peace with fascists than it was with communists, because the Royal Family feared communism above all other things, because they had close personal memories of their relatives in the in Russia being massacred by the communists. And so they thought <coughs> that you could make peace with Hitler, which was a pretty outrageous idea. So that was what happened, and at the end of 19... Once it was possible to get back into Germany, in 1945, Churchill wanted any traces of that correspondence, any traces of that relationship between not just the Duke of Windsor, but <clears throat> the Duke of Kent and the Nazis, he wanted any trace of that removed. So Blunt was sent with the archivists to retrieve what they could. And it's never been seen again. It's been disappeared. Unusual times, unusual times. So <laughs> we have, we've got... King Charles, presumably, then King William, presumably, then King George, presumably. If, well, or, or it may all go haywire long before that. If King George was, well, Prince George, young young primary school lad that he is, in future times were to have a daughter who would, by the change in the rules, now have the opportunity to become the next queen, what do you think george and william and charles and the queen to a certain extent do you do you think it's down to them or do you think it is sort of out of their out of their control and society will will go its own way whatever they do how much how much can they influence it and 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 ensure the, the the monarchy is something that continues which i'm sure the, the queen you know she's worked so hard and long to to more, you know, keep the monarchy going and make it something that is valued and respected. Um, what hope I, is there? I think that's a good acute question because there won't be another queen like this one. 
<clears throat> she's there are three remarkable queens in British history: Elizabeth I, Victoria, and this one. Um, it's not up to the royal family to decide. In the end, the fate of the monarchy is up to the people. The people are going through enormous changes. It's clear from the YouGov polling that the millennials and those between the ages of 18 and 30 don't have a sense that the monarchy is, is, is very relevant to their lives and that if the figurehead of the monarchy were to change from this one who basically follows the principle of do no harm and so it doesn't bother them but if when Charles arrives he's not as harmless but I think it's a social thing in the end it's whether does the does the institution itself rather than the person does the institution itself which costs a lot of money is very opulent and extravagant it's like um it is like a soap opera in a way they're all very well endowed the queen is an immensely rich person does that institution as opposed to the people that represent it does it have any carry on re relevance to the affairs of the country. Well, I think, as I said earlier, I think it does in a sense, and it's a kind of safety valve to prevent a politician being the head of state. That's worth a lot. <clears throat> but you have to earn it. The Queen's earned it. She's earned that. I don't think Charles will earn that at all. So I think that if someone younger does come to the throne, they could possibly earn it, but it would be a very much diminished monarchy, I think. It, it couldn't go on in this great contraption, this great gilded contraption from the past can't go on in that way forever and it would be such a different change as well because when the princess elizabeth became the queen elizabeth she was so young and sort of un not exactly unshaped or unformed but quite unknown partly because of the times being so different and it there wasn't that sort of close connection of lots of newspapers and magazines and sort of constant coverage but also because she'd had a very small part of her life. Whereas Charles has had, you know, he, he has had a long life already with yeah. many mistakes. Um, well, we, know, we, we know far more about him than we ever want to know. And we know relatively little in, 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 uh, inter in, in the, about the Queen's internal life. We know too much about Charles' internal one of the things that made this book worth writing, I think, was I didn't realise how fascinating it was until I really got into it, was that this whole um, ability of the Queen in an age of total media saturation of the royal family, the ability of the Queen to remain a private person and a public, to, and at the same time to be a public person, that's an, that was an astonishing challenge to me. And of course, when I got to the end of the book and I thought, do I know any more about this woman now than I knew at the beginning? And I thought, well, but all the times in which I've written about her and all the times I've, I've covered her and all the other reporting of her that I've edited by various people. <clears throat> and it struck me that all I know is what I see. And it strikes me also that anyone who pretends to know more than that doesn't really know. They're faking it. The, the royal whisperers who... They know a lot about all the other members of the family, but nobody really knows what we'd love to know about the Queen even now. I know people who know her very well, and they've been very discreet in, in talking to me, and they've said certain things about her which are very interesting. Somebody said to me that 
she's got the most remarkable memory that they've ever, see, ever seen in anyone, even now. Her mother was like that too. Her mother could remember everything. <clears throat> and that she's very, she's very, um, her attention span is still total 100% there. And she can, if she's asked to concentrate on a subject, she'll concentrate on it. She'll surprise you with her knowledge of political things. But if you ask her, was she pissed off by Boris trying to swing one over on her with the, you know, the prorogation thing, she'll never, never tell you. You'll have to guess the answer to that. And does she really approve of Brexit or disapprove? Which is one of the things we'd all love to know. We'd love to know that. Nobody has a clue about, about that either. So as a suck kind of would-be biographer, at the end of this biography, I have to confess, I can't answer any of those questions, nor can anybody else, but it's a, still a damn good story anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it is it is fascinating. If, if you're interested in the royals and if you also have a side bent in being interested in journalism, as I obviously do in my job, then it is a, it's a it's a very fun coming together of those of those two worlds. So thank you for coming today and talking to us about it, Clive author of The Last Queen. Um, so do check it out, listeners, if you haven't already. Uh, we'll share details on the Instagram as ever, um, at Podsave, and we're on Twitter at Podsave as well. But uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode. So wherever you are, stay safe and well. And until next time... Podsave the Queen! Podsave the Queen!